with the dawn of 2016, it's time for us to talk Trump. There are elections on the horizon. Our synagogue does not endorse political candidates or parties. You may do so, but we as a synagogue may not. We do, however, speak about policies. We speak about policies all the time. Policies determine the character of society. And since politicians make policies, by necessity and by definition, we speak about politicians. We comment on politics and we act in the political arena. Jews are duty-bound to repair society. It is the heart of the matter for Judaism. We are obligated, we do not have a choice, to speak about, act upon the moral challenges of our times. Whoever can prevent his household from doing wrong but does not is punished for the wrongs of his household, say the rabbis. Whoever can prevent his neighbors from doing wrong and does not is punished for the wrongs of his neighbors. Whoever can prevent the world from doing wrong and does not is punished for the sins of the world. We are summoned to speak for fairness and human dignity. This is our calling. All those who call for church and synagogue to stay out of politics, by which they mean never speak about the social challenges of our times, never speak about the here and now, only about the hereafter, condemn themselves to irrelevancy, and worse, they render religion itself impotent. Religion, once a fierce tiger, whose moral prowl stalked the mighty, whose threatening growl intimidated the powerful, has been defanged, declawed, and neutered by our own hands. Through self-mutilation, we have socially engineered this tiger into a domestic kitten. Religion has become for us a furball. Whenever we want to feel good, we pet this kit and cuddle it in our laps. Judaism is not a cuddly kitten. It is the voice that demands of you, what have I done today to promote human dignity, to alleviate humiliation, to ensure fairness, to diminish if only a little, the human tendency towards arrogance. Judaism is a religion of activism. It is a religion of protest. We do not escape the secular for the sacred. We ensacred the secular. We sanctify the daily trudge of life. When we select leaders in any field, in any institution or organization, even before assessing whether we agree with their views, we try to get a sense of the person. Does this person have the temperament and the qualities of leadership? 
Of all the troublesome aspects of the Trump phenomenon, for me, a window into his candidacy and to the fervor of his followers was early on in his belittlement of John McCain. Remember that? We've now overlooked it for even more outrageous rhetoric, but to me it was so revealing, so telling from a religious perspective. It was a teaching moment. It's why I want to dwell on this for a few minutes. Last summer, Trump said about McCain, he's not a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people who weren't captured. Spoken with such assurance from one who wasn't captured. But then again, he was never drafted. And he didn't volunteer. According to the media, he received four draft deferments while in college and a medical deferment after college. If others fight, they are more likely to be captured. That is true. The notion that not being captured is an achievement and to be captured is to join a long list of losers is revealing to me. The point is not that Trump avoided the draft. Many Americans did. The point is not that Trump didn't want to fight in Vietnam. Many Americans, and by the end I think most Americans were against the war. The point is not that Trump is hypocritical. All of us are, to greater or lesser degrees. The point is not that Trump is self-absorbed. All of us are, to greater and lesser degrees. The point is not that Trump is arrogant. All of us are, to greater or lesser degrees. The point is not that Trump disagrees with McCain on political issues. Many of us do. The point is that he likes people who weren't captured. That was the telling point for me. He likes people who don't put themselves at risk of being captured in the first place. In his mind, his deferments were a sign of his character. It's what winners do. Losers allow themselves to be drafted and to risk being captured or killed. Losers put themselves on the front line in the first place. David Foster Wallace was assigned by Rolling Stone magazine to cover the McCain campaign in the year 2000. He wrote the most scintillating piece. You can find it online or in one of his books of essays. You should read it. Wallace writes about McCain's experiences in Vietnam. He was in prison for five plus years, most of it in solitary confinement. He was tortured and starved. He was shot down and ejected into the middle of a lake in downtown Hanoi. Both his arms and one leg were broken. The furious crowd pulled him out of the lake and just about killed him. 
He was bayoneted in the groin. A soldier tore his shoulder apart with a rifle butt. By this time, his knee was bent 90 degrees to the side with the bone sticking out. He was tossed on a jeep and taken to the infamous prison, the Hanoi Hilton, where after a week of agony, some of his fractures were finally set without anesthesia, and others simply went untreated. He was delirious with pain for weeks, and his weight dropped to 100 pounds. After several months, when he could just barely stand up, he was suddenly brought to the commandant's office, who out of nowhere offered to let him go free. McCain's father had just been promoted to a senior admirable, admiral naval position, and the North Vietnamese wanted a propaganda victory by releasing his son from captivity. John McCain, a hundred pounds, and barely able to stand, refused the offer. The military's code of conduct required that POWs had to be released in the order that they were captured. Right there, in the commandant's office, guards broke McCain's ribs, rebroke his arm, and knocked his teeth out. McCain spent four more years mostly in a closet-sized box called a punishment cell. And then David Foster Wallace magnificently writes, think about how diametrically opposed to your own self-interest getting knifed in the groin and having fractures set without a general would be, and then about getting thrown into a cell to just lie there and hurt. Take a second or two to do some creative visualization. And imagine the moment between John McCain's first getting offered early release and turning it down. Try to imagine it was you. Imagine how loudly your basic, most primal self-interest would cry out to you in that moment all the ways that you could rationalize and take the offer. Imagine a real doctor and real surgery with painkillers and clean sheets and a chance to heal and not be in agony and to see your kids again, your wife, to smell your wife's hair. Can you hear it? What would be happening inside your head? Would you have refused the offer? Could you have? What we know for sure is that McCain chose to stay. The point, writes Wallace, is that he is capable of devotion to something other, more than his own self-interest. This is the point of leadership. The capability of devotion to something more than your own self-interest. 
This is what we call heroism. Ezehu Gibor, who is a hero? Ask the rabbis. Hakoveshet Yitzro, the one who can conquer his impulses, the one who is prepared to sacrifice for a higher cause, higher than themselves. That's what we're looking for in leaders. A hero in war or in peace is the one who can stop thinking of himself all the time as most of us live and think of others at least a little bit who can put himself in the shoes of others, in the place of the other, in the box of the other, in the punishment cell of the other. Great political leadership is not only salesmanship. It is that, too. But it is more than that. It is not only about stoking anger. Not only about trumpeting yourself. In the end, we need to be inspired to awaken the better angels of our nature so that we can think things and do things that we would otherwise not do because we are always so consumed with ourselves. We want to rise above our own self-interest and consider the interests of others. We want our leaders to have an understanding of true courage so that through moral example, they can inspire us to be more courageous. Most human beings are cowards. Fear paralyzes and incapacitates us. We're happy to let other, others do the fighting for us. Courageous leaders are not unafraid, but somehow they manage to overcome their fears while most cannot. They remain calm when everyone else loses their heads. If you ask them about their deeds, they will often tell you they did nothing exceptional, nothing that anyone else would not have done in similar circumstances. It's the way John McCain describes his own past. And the amazing thing is, that we follow these leaders. We follow them on the battlefield. We follow them in the political arena. We follow them in the boardroom, the classroom, the operating room. We follow them because of the way they make us feel. They make us feel better about ourselves and the human condition. They give us hope. They instill confidence. They remind us of what we can be, who we can be, and how we can be. Their motto is always after me, even if it puts me in harm's way, even if I risk being captured or killed, after me. It's the definition of heroism. It's the definition of courage. And we do follow these leaders. We follow them voluntarily 
We cede to them willingly authority because we trust them. Courage is as contagious as fear. We want a little courage too. We too want to be heroes. It is what our tradition teaches. All of us can be heroes. Because heroism is rising above yourself. All of us can do that. We want to be better. The truth is we don't want to live our lives preoccupied and absorbed only with our own needs. We don't. We want to make a difference to count for something. We want leaders to lift us up from the numbing drudgery of daily life and to awaken us to our fullest possibilities. We want leaders who can make us better. We want leaders who can help us recapture our enthusiasm for good, our youthful confidence. We want leaders who can truly make us great again.